0: It's good to see y'all. Aren't you glad we're not sitting outside in the chilly November weather? Uh, So excited that you are here. Friendsgiving is coming up later today. Uh, Immediately after the service, uh, anybody that is willing and able and wants to hang around for a few minutes and help us tear down this room and set up. It'll take, uh, what is what is the phrase? Many hands, light work? No, I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, a lot more people will help us move quicker. That's, that's what I'm saying, all right? I'm sticking to it. So we're in week eight of the series called Gentle and Lowly. It's all about uh, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. We're doing this in tandem with a book of the same name. I just want to say this again. Uh, there are free books uh, out at our guest services. If you want to grab a copy, if you haven't, Uh, yet done that, please feel free to do that. We still have some connection groups for the next few weeks. If you want to get connected to some folks uh, around this content, um, that'd be amazing. So go to friendshipwire.com, look for the gentle and lowly tab, uh, and it'll give you all the information you need there. So, you know, as 21st century Americans, we have this performance mindset, you know, where we have to perform um, to be accepted, to be Loved to be valued and the problem is that many of us view God and our relationship with God in that same way. Like we've got to perform in order to be loved by God, to be accepted by God, to be valued by God, to be we gotta be religious enough. And you know what? This book and the series has been purposely repetitive because one of the ways we learn is through repetition. And yet one of the ways that we relearn and break down, because for so many of us, that that performance mindset is so embedded in the way that we see God. Maybe that comes from our family upbringing. Maybe it's just from the culture that we're in, but we need to relearn who God is. And that, this is what the series is about, is learning the heart of Christ for us. And so for some of us, we need to reprogram how we see his heart for us. So for some of you, this is really repetitive, week in and week out. We're hearing the same things, but in different ways. And we're seeing different scriptures that speak to the heart of Christ. For some of you, it's the same thing over and over. And that's good. For some of you, this may be the first time you're hearing some of this stuff about the heart of Christ for you. And man, I'm just glad that you're you're here today. Uh, I wanna start out by asking you a question. What kind of things do you yearn for? You want to use that word yearn. It's not one that we use every day, but it means to desire strongly, to long for, to be eager for, to wish for, to set your heart upon. What are some of the things that you are, are yearning for in your life? And it may be simple things like um, Thanksgiving, time with your family, time to be reunited with people that you love. Maybe for some of you, if you've lost loved ones, which a lot of folks have this year, you're you're longing for, yearning for that reunion in heaven together. Maybe you're longing to be married or to be a parent. Maybe you're longing for a better job. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're yearning for the day you get to retire, right? Um, There's any number of things you could be yearning for on November 14th, 2021. Let me just give you like a window into the mind of of Andrew. Um, Some of the things that I'm yearning for as I think about my life right now. One of the things that... uh, I yearn for, that I've never experienced this before, is for, for my whole family, for all my kids to be together. Um, it's been five months since my oldest son made his way to Missouri, and we think about the holidays, and unfortunately, he's not going to be able to be here for Christmas. And and so I go, man, I can't wait until we can just all be together again. It's been a long time. Now I get what my mother-in-law would get frustrated about. 22 years ago, when we first got married, and she just wanted all the kids to come home. And uh, I, 22 years ago, I didn't get it. I get it now. Uh, so I yearn for that. Uh, one of the things I yearn for um, is a road trip that I'm taking this coming week. So my son Aiden turned 16 a couple weeks ago. Um, we're doing a 16th birthday road trip to Columbus, Ohio. And I know that sounds glorious. Um, you're like, what kind of celebration is that? Uh, I'm taking him to his first a football game at the Ohio State University, and they're playing Michigan State. And uh, and so uh, I actually learned yesterday that college game day is going to be setting up shop in Columbus next weekend, and it's a top 10 uh, matchup. And so I'm excited. I'm yearning for that. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, I'm not excited about the Ohio weather in November, um, but y'all pray that our Buckeyes win for my son. All right. <laughs> You know, if y'all can do that, that'd be awesome. Uh, I, I'm yearning for that. It's going to be such a fun trip for us. Um, I'm also, quite honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm yearning a little bit for some banana pudding, y'all. My wife was making like so much, so much banana pudding. If y'all don't eat it tonight, it's okay because it's coming home with me. Uh, but I, man, there's a lot of things that we can yearn for and there's a lot of good stuff that we, we all long for. And I... I think that, that those good kind of longings are always a, a pointer or what I would call a signpost that point us to the ultimate longing that we have for Christ and for all things to be restored and made as they ought to be. We all have this natural longing and yearning in our hearts. We are created to have this yearning for Christ. But today what I want to talk about um, is the yearning heart of God. What does God the Father, what does He long for? What does He yearn for? And so last week we started into uh, looking into the Old Testament a little bit at the Father's heart. And, you know, one of the things we said last week was that when you move from the Old Testament um, into the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and it's not like he goes a different direction with the heart of God. Rather, he, he further clarifies and expands and sharpens our understanding of the heart of God because the heart of Christ is also the heart of God. And so we began looking in the, the Old Testament. We looked at the book of Lamentations. This week, we're going to look at another book Uh, briefly, the book of Jeremiah. Now, both of these books that we've been looking at uh, speak to a major event in the history of the life of Israel, the people of God. And if you remember last week, we talked about the exile. The, the, the Babylonian captivity, when God warned his people to follow him and to turn from their wickedness and their sin. And he warned that they would be judged if they did not turn back to him. And they continued to go their own way. And so he allowed Babylon to come in and, and destroy Jerusalem and take God's people captive. And so in the, this is a major turning point, a major event in the history of the nation of Israel. In both of these books, Lamentations last week, Jeremiah this week, have to do with that, that event, the event of the exile. And so what I wanna do, I think, again, it's really important for us to understand the, the context for what we're gonna see this morning. We're only gonna look at one verse in the book of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 31, verse 20. But I want us to understand what's going on in the entire book Of Jeremiah. And so, one of the things I contemplated doing was showing a video uh, from the Bible Project. You all have seen me use these before. They're the animated, um, like short films that kind of give you a synopsis of what a book of the Bible is all about. Um, Their whole goal is to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that all leads to Jesus. And so they have some really cool resources um, and videos that I love to use. Uh, I'm not going to use that today, but uh, I do have a link for their website on uh, our website, friendshipwire.com, under our resources tab, Bible Project. And I love to provide you all with resources um, to help you grow. These are things that help me in my relationship with God, and I, and I want to share them with you all. Um, So rather than using that video, and I want to show you just a little image of, this is, if you all remember this kind of drawing, so this is kind of an overview of the book of Jeremiah. If you want to see that particular video, Uh, The link is in the digital bulletin and sermon notes. Uh, I want to show you a different video, however, from a guy named Tim Mackey. He's kind of the voice of Bible Project. And he's walking through about, it takes about five minutes, and he kind of lays out for us what the book of Jeremiah is all about. So if you would take the next few minutes to turn your attention to the
1: screens. So uh, the prophet Jeremiah, he uh, came kind of at the latter end of Israel's kingdom period. He was one of the prophets. Uh, that, that uh, lived and preached and did his work right around the time of the exile of uh, the Israelites to the people of Babylon. And in many ways uh, the book is broken up into Uh, Pre-exile and then the event of the exile. So in these early chapters of the book here, long stretch here, chapters 1 through 24, it's just poem after poem after poem of Jeremiah accusing the Israelites of all kinds of things. He accuses them of uh, adultery. He uses the metaphor of adultery or like marital unfaithfulness to describe the people of Israel. As they turn and worship other gods, it's like uh, a, a wife who's leaving her husband for, you know, another man. And so he develops this very powerful imagery of adultery, uh, of, of Israel turning to rely on other nations, on Egypt uh, or uh, other nations, instead of trusting in Yahweh. And so this is a long section, and it's just very powerful poetry exposing the idolatry, uh, the hypocrisy among God's people. One of the highlights and very powerful images is a is a sermon essentially, an announcement Jeremiah gives in the temple. He goes to the temple in Jerusalem and there's animals being sacrificed, people there are doing their daily worship, and he just he calls everybody uh, to stop and he just says, do you realize what's happening here? This is just a sham. This is a show. None of this counts because we have become a nation of injustice Uh, and who's turning after other gods. And so most of this uh, is kind of doom and gloom. He's announcing that Israel needs to turn, but it's also these uh, announcements are studded with little promises, one of the largest ones that comes in chapter 23. And he says, if we as a nation return to Yahweh, uh, if we turn from uh, our idols and other gods, he says he will send us a king from the line of David. He'll send the Messiah. But essentially, the people are not ready for the Messiah. They're not obedient. And so the promise of the Messiah is kept at bay. That's in chapter uh, 23 here. So what goes on in in the next block of the book here, chapters 25 through 29, is uh, Jeremiah has a mission. Uh, He sees basically Israel as a lost cause. And so he announces that God's going to bring a nation to judge Israel, the nation of Babylon. And here uh, in chapter 28, It's actually a battle with another prophet of Israel. And uh, this prophet, uh, a guy named Hananiah, is saying that no, God loves Israel. He's going to bless us no matter what. Even if uh, we're disobedient, he's going to bless us. And Jeremiah says, no, no, he's going to bring uh, the nation of Babylon who's going to judge us as his people. Just the fact that he chose Abraham to be a blessing to all of the nations doesn't mean that we're safe and can do whatever we want. He's going to bring judgment even on his own covenant people. And that was a message that Israel did not, did not want to hear. And so he announces that the exile is going to happen. It's going to last 70 years. Babylon's going to come, take everybody out, and haul them away into exile. And right after he finishes that kind of doom and gloom announcement, we have four chapters here, chapters 30 through 33. And this is often called the Book of Hope or the Book of Consolation in Jeremiah. And he uh, basically holds out the idea that after exile, after Babylon comes, he doesn't specify the timing. He just says God will return us back to the land. He will bring the Messiah. He will uh, forgive us and bring restoration and eventually fulfill his promises somehow. It's a very beautiful chapters of hope here after some very dark chapters of judgment in 25 to 29. So the book finishes by kind of rounding out with uh, two large blocks of, uh, one of narrative, and this is a large section just talking about Jeremiah's life and the horrible events that happened when Babylon came to town and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And it's kind of like uh, reading a dramatic history or something. You knew that it's coming and now these chapters just walk you through how the people reject Jeremiah's message and therefore Babylon comes and takes them out. And so the the book ends with a number of chapters here where Jeremiah announces that God is going to bring judgment not just uh, on Israel but also on Babylon itself because Babylon was a nation of great wickedness and oppression and injustice. And so even though God uses Babylon to judge Israel he's also going to bring a judgment on Babylon itself. And so uh, these are collections of poems about God's uh, bringing judgments on all of the nations surrounding Israel. But yet there's still a promise of hope on the other side of uh, of judgment. So that's kind of the flow of uh, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, The theme should be familiar already from reading Isaiah and the themes will be similar to the prophets that follow. But uh, essentially the exile was one of the great turning points of Israel's history. And everything about God's promises hinged uh, on this event and the hope for future restoration and for the Messiah on the other side of the book of exile. So it's a very powerful book, and uh, I think you're going to find a rewarding but challenging read. So we'll see you next time. So uh, the prophet Jeremiah... Not again.
0: Not again. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So... uh... I think it's important that we see the context because the verse that we're going to look at is in chapter 31. It's right smack in the middle of that book. And, and if we put the image, the kind of diagram back up on the screen again, you see those first 29 chapters are all about God's people and their sinfulness and their wickedness and turning from the Lord and warning of judgment. And then in the midst of this and that middle section, that book of hope or that book of consolation, God speaks hope to them. And it's such a powerful thing. And so we're going to pull straight from, from the middle of that hope section. But, but what I want to do is I want to read just a few verses to you in Jeremiah. You know, those first 29 chapters, all about their sinfulness. And I want you to see this kind of play out through just a few verses in the first part of, of the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 1, verse number 16 He says this, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Chapter two, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And second, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Chapter three, verse two. He, in another scathing indictment, he says, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. And he's not just talking about sexual sin. He's talking about the fact that they have committed spiritual adultery. Chapter four, verse 14, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? And then chapter five, verse 23, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, they have turned aside and gone away. And so, again, for twenty-nine chapters, there's there's all of this speaking to, to and against the sin of God's people. And then you come into this book of hope. Um, so that that book of hope it comes right on the heels of Jeremiah twenty-nine. I just want to this is kind of I want to take a little tangent, a little aside for a moment. To, to just share something with you. There's this tendency that we have as Christians, if you engage the Bible um, or biblical things, um, to, to pull verses out and to you know, maybe put it on your wall or put it on a plaque or you know, put it on a pillow or something sweet like that. And, and the, the, pro, the problem with that is sometimes we, we yank good verses out of context And I want to show you one, because in Jeremiah Jeremiah 29 is one of the most widely used verses that we look to for hope. And it's a great verse, but I want you to see it in context. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, see if you recognize this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you are familiar with that? Maybe you have embroidered on something, right? It's a great verse because it says God has a plan for you. His future for you is not one of evil, but it's, it's, there's a future and a hope that he has for us. But I want you to back up one verse in the context. Look what it says in verse number 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So I don't know if you caught this here. What he's saying is Babylon has come in, has taken you captive, and they will hold you captive for 70 years. After 70 years, I am going to come back, and I am going to restore you, and I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to put you back where you belong because I have a future and a hope for you so are you catching what's going on here he doesn't say hey tomorrow things are going to be great next week just hang on it's going to get better he says in 70 years my plan is going to start unfolding For you, this future and this hope I have for you. And so I say that because some of us go, God's got a future. He's got a plan for me. Hallelujah. And we pray, pull this verse out. And sometimes what God is saying is, Yes, I have a future and a hope for you. I have good desires for you. But y'all, it may take a little while. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen in a year. It may take 70 years. For us, it may not happen until the role is called up yonder, but he has plans for our good and for his glory. It's not on our timetable. You see that? Are you understanding? Are you tracking with me? Because again, we have a tendency to pull things out and go, this is a beautiful promise. Yes, it is, but understand the context of what God is saying here. But again, this is in chapter 29, and it's, it leads into this book of hope, the book of consolation, chapters 30 through 33, and we're going to look at one verse in the middle of all of this, and it's Jeremiah 31, verse number 20. And I want to read this, and, and then we're going to just kind of walk through this verse phrase by phrase, Jeremiah 31, verse number 20. This is right in the middle of the book of hope, and it may be the best summary of, of what God is saying in this section of scripture. Verse number 20, he says this, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And so let's just, let's just walk through this phrase by phrase. It's a simple verse, and yet, man, there's so much in here that you need to hear. So the first thing he says is this, he asked two questions. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? And he, he poses it in the form of a question, but really he's making a statement about Ephraim. And Ephraim is another name for Israel, the people of God. He's, he's speaking of his people with affection, right? And, and there's other places in, in the Old Testament in particular where he calls Israel his son, but he, he goes beyond that here. He, he calls Israel his dear son, his darling child. Can you hear the, the heart of God in this text? I don't know about you, but I, I can't remember a time in my life where I have referred to one of my sons as my darling son. <laughs> I don't recall, but just heads up, if I ever in the middle of a service say, hey, darling, I could be speaking to my wife. I could be speaking to my son Ridge in the back, um, which would creep him out. I, would not, I wouldn't do that. Even though I'm affectionate, I love my son. Um, but this is the way that God speaks of his people who he, he sees as his son. Is, is Ephraim or Israel my dear son? Is he my darling child? There's this deep affection that he has. And then he goes on to say this, for as often as I speak against him, and understanding the context now that you do, we're coming off of twenty-nine chapters of him speaking against his son, speaking against his sins, speaking against his his spiritual adultery, right? He's he's speaking against him over and over and over. And what we see here is that 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 the sin of his people is is a serious matter. It's not something to just be swept under the rug and brushed off it is important and so he speaks against his son 29 chapters but then he goes on for as often as i speak against him i do remember him still i do remember him still and and this isn't remembering in the sense of like recalling with, with our mind or with our memory. Because remember, God is, this is God who's speaking. God is all-knowing. God doesn't forget stuff unless he chooses to, like the Psalms say, put our, our sin as far as the East is from the West. He chooses to forget our sin. And, but this isn't talking about his ability to recall facts. This is a covenant this is covenant language. It's relational. He's, he's not saying, I won't forget you. He's saying, no, no, no. I won't forsake you. Though I speak as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. I'm speaking against his sin, but man, I still remember. I still am gonna keep my promise to you. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. When you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ask a question. What's the question? You know? What's it Therefore, All right. You tracking with me? What's it Therefore, for? It's referring back to something he's just said. What is just, what's, he, what's he saying? Or was he just said, because he's my dear son, because he's my darling child, even though I speak speak against him i still remember him therefore he goes on and he says my heart and he speaks about his heart now we understand that when we talk about our heart it, it's not typically referring lit- to our literal physical like organ right we're talking about what's inside of us and when you when you translate this word heart you could literally be referring to a person's insides or a person's guts all right, you could you could translate this word as internal organs or belly or even womb or one of my favorites, bowels. Okay, um, I decided against, you know, in the book, chapter 18, we're in chapter 17, 18 of the book. Uh, I decided against using the title of the chapter, chapter 18, because the title is yearning bowels. And I just thought that just is, I don't know, on a Sunday morning, we might just leave that out, even though I've said it now. Um, so when we talk about heart we talk about we're talking about you know God doesn't have guts right we're talking about his his innermost desire like his deepest feelings that that we would say are expressed in in emotions this is what he's talking about he says therefore my heart my guts the, the deepest part of me what about his heart he says this therefore my heart yearns and I talked about that word earlier, the idea of longing for, desiring, set our, setting our heart upon. But, but this word in the, in the Hebrew, again, you could literally translate this as great commotion. To, to rage, to roar, to moan, clamor, to be moved, to be in an uproar. And so it's, it's this yearning, this like churning within. Like, and so some of us would go, yeah, I, I get when my bowels sometimes you know are churning and yearning after eating it. San Jose or whatever, I know what that's movement, roaring, all that stuff going on, but he's talking about the the deepest part of him. He says, My heart yearns. It's moved by something. What does it say his heart is yearning for? He says, My heart yearns for him. He's speaking about his son, his dear son, his darling. Child, and he's speaking of Israel collectively, but he's speaking about every single one individually. He's speaking about his people. He says, My heart yearns for my people. And this is so, what makes this so amazing is the context. Remember what we've seen 29 chapters of you're in sin, you're, you're, your ways are wicked. You're living for yourself. You're doing your own thing and you have ignored me. You have ignored my ways and I'm warning you, judgment is coming. Nothing good is gonna happen with the way that you are going. You need to turn to me for 29 chapters. And yet here he comes and he says, though I speak often against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. My heart yearns for those that belong to me because they're my own. They belong to me. They are my son, my daughter, my people. I love the way Dane Ortland in the book puts this. He said it this way. Do you see what God is revealing about himself, what he is insisting on? His capacious, which means roomy or spacious, his capacious affections for his own are not threatened, by their fickleness, because pouring out of his heart is the turbulence of divine longing. I love that phrase. Pouring out of his heart is the turbulence of divine longing. Maybe you've been through turbulence before. It's it's not like just flying calmly. Man, there's something within the heart of God that yearns, that turns over, that is moved by you, his heart yearns for you and it's not dependent on your fickleness, my fickleness, our kind of going our own way and doing our own thing and our hearts being turned in a different direction. His, His adoration, his yearning for us isn't dependent on that. And we see that because again, he has spoken clearly to their sinfulness. And yet he says, man, my heart yearns for you. And then one last phrase in Jeremiah 31 verse 20, he says this, I will surely have mercy on him. I will surely have mercy on him. When he says mercy here, he's talking about love and compassion and and pity, even in our sin, love and compassion and pity. I will surely have mercy on him. And again, when you kind of go back to the original language in the Hebrew, it, it it uses this word mercy multiple times, a couple times. And it, it, it's kind of clunky if you try to translate it word for word into English. It would read, having mercy, I will have mercy. And this happened in the Hebrew language as a way to emphasize something. And I love this because the emphasis here when he says, I will surely have mercy on him, the emphasis is mercy, mercy because you and I need mercy over and over and over again, he says, I will surely have mercy on him. And so, how do we live in light of this truth? What we see in Jeremiah 20, or 31, verse 20. So, in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, the context, we've been talking about context, right? He's speaking to his dear son, who is Israel, right? Right? So y'all, you ain't Israel. We're not Israel. So what about us? He, his heart yearns for his dear son Israel, but what about me? What about you? What is his heart for us? Is it different for us? What you see in the New Testament as you make your way into the, the New Testament and you see what happens and what unfolds there, we are shown in the New Testament that the Father's heart also yearns for us. You know how we know that His heart yearns for us, not just Israel way back when? It's because He sent His dear Son, Jesus, for you and for me. He sent His one and only darling child, the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for me to take our place to pay for our sin. You know, if we're honest, when we look at our life, we would look at our, our, our history and the past story of our life, and there's at least 29 chapters of sin and wickedness and rebellion and doing our own thing and living for ourselves, right? Every single one of us has at least 29 chapters. That's all about me and yet a just God, a God who is just and does what is right and, and executes judge, ju- uh, justice in all his ways, he, he can't stand by and allow our sin to go untouched, to not deal with our sin. A just God must deal with our sin. And yet what we see and what we've seen eight weeks now is that the heart of God for us is a heart of mercy and love and compassion. And so how does God reconcile his justice with his heart towards us, which is mercy? There's only one way. He sent his son, Jesus, who Romans 3 tells us because of, in, his, in the wisdom of God's plan, he, he was able to put our sin upon his son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sin so that we could receive his mercy, so that you and I could become a dear son, a darling child, because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, John says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest. It was shown to us, Uh, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, not that we yearn for him, because if we're being honest, we don't always yearn for him, but his love isn't dependent on where we're at in the moment. No, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, his sacrifice appeases or satisfies the wrath, the justice of God. And so how do we know that the father's heart for us, how do we know that he yearns for us the way that he did for his son Israel? Simple, because he sent Jesus, his dear son for us to prove the depth of his love for us. And so one thing you got to know today, this is, this is the main idea. What does the, the father, what does his heart yearn for? The object of the father's heart is you. It's you. I just let that sink in. Let that soak in. I don't know what your, your, your previous week has looked like, but God does. And he sees you and his heart yearns for you. I want to read this quote again from the book, Dane Orland. This is like the one quote that just grabbed a hold of me because I relate to what is the question being posed here. He says this, whom do you perceive him to be? Whom do you perceive God to be in your sin and your suffering? Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but in the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? His saving of us is not cool and calculating. It is a matter of yearning. Not yearning for the Facebook you. Not yearning for the you that you project to everyone around you. Not the you that you wish you were yearning for the the real you the you underneath everything you present to others and again i don't know what you've gone through in the last week i don't i don't know the sin that you've struggled with i don't know the thoughts that you wish did not occur the the, the words that you wish you could take back the things that you did and living for yourself. I don't know the sin and the suffering you've experienced over the last week. Here's what I know is that the Father's heart yearns for you, that you are the object of his yearning heart. And aren't you thankful for that this morning? And for some of us, again, we need to deprogram and reprogram how we see God's heart for us, that it's not a pointing finger, that it's not beating us down. Man, his heart for us is gentle and lowly. His heart yearns for us, amen. And Father, this morning we do wanna say thank you for this yearning heart of yours that is for us, that you speak against our sin, And you speak against our wandering and our wickedness, but you don't speak against us, you are for us. And so God, I just wanna say thank you for this truth today, for those that this morning need to hear this and be reminded of your heart for them. Lord, I pray that it would sink in deeply. Lord, I pray that we would be able to receive the mercy that you have offered to us through Your dear son, Jesus. Lord, I I know that there are people who watch and listen and who, who sit in the room with us each week who may know about you, may be familiar with you, but they don't know you as father. They have never given themselves over completely to you. And maybe, God, this morning is an opportunity for you to call that person to yourself, that this morning is a warning to walk away from their sin, to walk away from their own way. God, in a moment of grace and mercy to say, come to me, because my heart is for you. And so, God, I pray for every single one of us, whatever our need is this morning, that we would find in you the God who loves and forgives when we turn our hearts toward you. And so, Lord, in our understanding of your yearning heart for us, would you create within us today a heart that yearns for you? God, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace today. In Jesus' name we pray.